0: Our guest speaker this morning is Ian Smith. I mentioned uh, Converge Worldwide earlier. Ian is a commissioned missionary to Japan with Converge Worldwide. Uh, We support, as a church, uh, Ian's mission there. Uh, He is a graduate of Cow Pie High, otherwise known as Black Hills High School. The University of Washington, go Dogs, and uh, did his graduate work at Wheaton University. Uh, Ian has become a good friend. I appreciate him very much, and uh, he's no stranger to most of you. So, Ian, um, thank you for being here. I I will just tell you that um, I've I've sat through a lot of messages in my lifetime, as you have. Some messages, you take notes. Other times, you just put down your pen and go, "Ah, I don't know what's going on here. But, But I took three pages of notes the first hour from your message. So it's going to be deep. Get out your pens. Welcome, Ian Smith. Uh, I
1: guess if I do it in Japanese, it'll be a little bit more difficult for you guys to get three pages worth of notes out of it. Probably just be doodling uh, most of the time, so I won't do that. I am your missionary to the nation of Japan with Converge Worldwide for the last four years. I've been serving uh, in Chiba Prefecture, the two years of intensive Japanese language studies followed by uh, two years working with the local church, doing evangelism, discipleship, outreach, and ministry among college students. Uh, I'm part of Converge, which is the the network of churches that this church belongs to, and I believe that missionaries are an extension of the local church, Uh, that's the model we see modeled by Paul, being sent out by the church in Antioch, and I got to know this church while I was raising my support. I was part of a life group here, and I've always known and been very grateful for your prayers and for your support. Uh, I, don't wanna, I don't want this to be about me, though. Um, you know, One of the temptations to get up here is to be like, you know, I've got my three-hour-long slideshow, you know, missions, we're going to talk about the GDP of Japan, their biggest you know, exports and imports, and... Uh, <laughs> And I'm sure that would be all very enthralling and exciting for you guys. Uh, But you know what I want when I come to church on Sunday morning, I want to meet Jesus. And I want to go away having spent time with the Lord. And so it would be remiss of me to come up here this morning and and talk only about myself and my own ministry. If you want to know more about my ministry, I do have a prayer card on the back table back there. Uh, Looks like this. You can put it up somewhere in your house. You need some extra light. It will reflect all of the light in the room and just brighten everything up. Uh, And they're back there on the table. You can also sign up for my prayer letter. I sent out between one... I send them out quarterly right now but I'm going to increase that once I'm back in the field uh, but if you want something it's not going to spam your inbox like you know 10 emails a day but maybe once every couple months you'll get something so you know how to pray for me how to follow what I'm doing in Japan and I'd really appreciate your prayers because we know that the effective fervent prayers of godly men and women availeth much and I can't be out there uh, working without your prayers and there, there are so many spiritual strongholds that need to be torn down in the nation of Japan that are only going to be torn down by, by our prayers. Um, so, uh, a little bit uh, before we jump in today, um, I want to you know uh, kind of lay some groundwork. I'll give you guys some things to think about. Um, I'm going to talk in a passage that's really familiar to many of you, having grown up in the church probably, many of you maybe have been Christians for a long time, and so this may be a passage that's really familiar, and it's amazing how you can take a scripture verse in the word and turn it, and the way God's light reflects through it, it becomes something altogether all new. And so hopefully this is a familiar verse, and we're going to go places with it that maybe you haven't heard before. Uh, so the title of today's message is The Great Commission, The Great Commission is Good News. The Great Commission is good news. And of course, that's a play on words. You know, good news is the gospel. You know, but the Great Commission isn't the gospel. But it's still good news. Uh, but I want to see how the gospel as the lens through which we look at the Great Commission draws out different themes. And I want us to be, uh, at least this morning as much as I can be, gospel-centered in our in our view of, of this passage. And, be, and the reason why I think it's important to look at the Great Commission through the lens of the gospel is all too often, and I've been guilty of this myself, uh, the Great Commission is preached through the lens of law and duty and obligation and death. And I say that to say it's full of verbs. Go, teach, make. And when you preach it the way it it can often be preached, it becomes about us and what we have to do. And I'm hopefully going to show you that that's not the case. So, uh, just setting that up, uh, we're going to jump right into Matthew 28. Before I, I go any further, does anybody want to tell me what the Great Commission is? Can anybody quote the Great Commission from memory? got a volunteer. Jesus loves volunteers. Go and make disciples of all nations. Yeah, that's the Great Commission, right? Uh, well, you know, I think that, like I said, if we start there... And that's really good, thank you for that, by the way. Uh, if we start there, we miss out on some incredible gospel truths. so we're actually going to start if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to matthew twenty eight uh, and we're going to look at at verses sixteen to twenty so this is it's interesting today. you know we just celebrated Easter, and this really comes in context of easter this This passage starts. Pretty soon after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so, uh, just to set up the context, Jesus was betrayed by Judas, uh, given over to the Roman soldiers for 30 pieces of silver, was crucified, uh, all of his disciples abandoned him, Jesus, or Peter denied him three times, uh, he died on the cross, he was buried, uh, after three days he rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death, and Then he encounters his disciples again. And so this is where we pick up. It says in verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So the Great Commission starts with obedience. Uh, We're not going to dig down too deep there, but I think that you could probably preach a sermon. The first thing they do is they're obedient. Jesus says, come to this mountain, and they come. That's good. But there's also a little bit of darkness and sadness in this verse. It's 11 disciples. And so, you know, there's already some brokenness showing through. When they saw him, they worshipped. And if I was John Piper, I'd tell you about how missions exist because... Worship doesn't. In fact, uh if you haven't had a chance to read it, John Piper wrote a book, probably one of the best books in the twentieth century on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad and you can underline but you know, write that down and underline it, you can get it for free, a PDF version of it online. It is a great book on missions. I'll quote just one really short passage from it, and this is the whole book is like this. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is the ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. So, missions is not the end goal. Missions is the means by which we bring about worship among the nations. And then the picture of heavens, the new heavens and the new earth, is worship. Worshipping the king before the throne. All the nations bowing down. Every tongue, tribe, language. Worshipping before the throne of God. Bringing their treasures to Jesus. And that is the goal of missions. And you know, we read this passage and they they went to see him and they worshipped him. Be like, that's awesome. And we just skip over the next part. Because it's really uncomfortable. Because there's a really, you know, and I think even when we read passages like this, it's easy to mentally jump to the next good part. Uh, but every, every jot and tittle, according to the King James Version, is here for us for a reason. Uh, God, God inspired his words, and he, he left this next part in. And it says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. But some doubted. Dang it, Thomas. Seriously? It doesn't say who, it says some. So it wasn't just Thomas, and we've got to be gracious towards Thomas because he, he ended up making one of the most clear proclamations of Jesus' divinity anywhere in the scriptures, and so he shouldn't be called doubting Thomas. He's believing Thomas, just like we're not sinners, we're saints. Uh, but it says some doubted, and I think that God left that in there for us because guess what, folks? God gave his great commission to broken, imperfect, real people. And the same great commission he gave to them, to doubting, broken, imperfect people, he's giving to us. And so he didn't wait for them to get their act together because there was no amount of getting to their act together that would have ever gotten them where they needed to be. And so that is incredibly good news for us. God gives this great commission to doubters. Jesus came to them and said, all authority is on it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So these doubting people, and this is actually in, in Japanese, I love what it says here, it says, Yesu wa chikazu And of course that's going to mean nothing to you, but chika, chikaru is to, be close. Or, uh, <laughs> means he, he leaned in. He came close. Instead of just saying he came to them, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, it's saying Jesus leaned in. So the midst of their doubts, in the midst of them being imperfect, sinful, broken people who had just betrayed him and run away, in the midst of that, Jesus leans in. It's an incredible picture of grace and he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and there's probably theological books written about that particular statement you could probably dig down you know we talk about you know him sitting at the right hand of his father in heaven reigning and ruling and even though we look around the world right now and we don't see the dominion of Jesus coming on earth the way that we would hope it would be, that we don't see peace and, and the, the power of the gospel transforming nations and peoples the way that maybe, maybe we would hope. But the truth of the matter is, what Jesus is saying here is a very simple proclamation. He's saying, I am the king. I pose this question to you. If you were to wake up tomorrow and turn on the news... We've got, you know, recently we just had a a young man shoot up a synagogue down in California. We've had terrible things happening all over the world. In uh, Sri Lanka there was a bombing of churches. You turn on the TV and rather than them saying just these terrible things are going on, the first thing the newscaster says is Jesus is king. He's on his throne. He's ruling. He's reigning. Everything that is happening is happening according to his plan for his glory. How would that change every story that comes after? And how does that change what he says right after this? Because rather than the Great Commission being this Damoclean sword hanging over our neck, this law, this judgment saying, There's a, there are billions of people out there that are going to hell without Jesus, and we're sitting here comfortably in Olympia, Washington, Drinking lattes and playing video games and, and you know, uh not maybe that's not what you guys do. <laughs> but and there's so many lost out there, and it's easy to preach that guilt, that shame, to try to motivate people to engage in the Great Commission. But you know what? Shame and guilt do not motivate for the long term. They may motivate giving and action in the short term, but they don't sustain you through the hard times. They don't keep you persevering like the the Apostle Paul did in the midst of suffering. He had a picture of Jesus that motivated him. And so when Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he's saying, Everything that happens is happening according to my plan. I am the king, and I will accomplish this mission. This is my mission not yours. And that is incredibly good news. Because that means the mission is not reliant on our strength, on our wisdom, on our best methods, or on our resources. The mission is too big for us. It's a God-sized mission that requires God to work and God uses the weak things to shame the strong and the foolish things to shame the wise. And he uses his broken, doubting, imperfect church to bring about the transformation, kingdom transformation here on earth. And that is incredibly good news because he wants to use us as imperfect and broken as we are to bring about reconciliation, life, and transformation here on earth as it is in heaven. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Therefore, You can go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, if TTI was here, it's another branch of Converge. They talk about how we need to be disciple makers that make disciples. And there's a lot you can get from this verse. And it would be easy to brush past some of it because we could talk about the Trinitarian thing. It says, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's good Trinitarian theology. Uh, it, you know, baptize them. We're Baptists. So let's, let's baptize lots of people. Uh, but I, I, there's something here. And I'm going to give you a, a $30,000 nugget of truth. That's the cost of a graduate's education at Wheaton College in Illinois. Uh, I had the opportunity to study under a guy named Gregory Beale when I was at Wheaton. And he's one of the foremost uh, theologians in the United States and in the world right now. And, and one of his, uh, his, his pet kind of uh, focuses is on inaugurated eschatology. That is, we live between two times in history. That is, the, the time before Christ and the coming of Christ at the end times. And we're living in this intermediate period and, and Jesus has been victorious at the cross and in his resurrection and his his kingdom reign is unfolding right now and we see it in its infancy, in its inaugurated sense, we're seeing it coming about through the church, through disciples around the world, and yet it's not fully accomplished. And so we're waiting for Jesus to come back, not just in the inaugurated sense, but as the, as the true reigning and ruling king. And so we're living in the midst of this time, and so he, he, you know, he taught us how to look at the whole New Testament through that sense. And so it says in Ephesians that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. How is it that spiritually we're seated with Christ and yet we're here dealing with sin and all this other stuff? Well, one of the things he taught me to really, uh, understand was one of the motifs of fruitfulness in, 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 in in the New Testament and the old. And, and I, I kind of had fruit on the brain when I was in grad school. And so I saw fruit everywhere. And, uh, and you know what? It starts in Genesis chapter one. Uh, In Genesis chapter 1, when God created man, he said, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And of course, Gregory Beale has, you know, lots of doctorates and things like that. And so he's read this in the Greek and the Hebrew and, and all the other different translations that could possibly translate. No, actually, probably not. But, uh, <laughs> but one of the things he, he, he helped me to see was that this great commission in Matthew 28 is not a new mission. In fact, it's a recommissioning. It is in form and structure, the same commission given to Adam in the garden. There you go, your $30,000 $30, nugget of truth. You get that? So the Great Commission is not new. It's in fact a restatement or a recommissioning of the first commission to Adam. Where Adam and Eve fail to accomplish the mission given to them. They've been given this mission, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it. And yet, because of the serpent and because of the deception and Adam and Eve's failure and fall into sin, what did God curse? He cursed woman's childbearing. With great pain, you will bring forth children. And he cursed man's ability to bring forth fruit from the ground. He said, with the sweat of your brow and against the dust, you will toil all the days of your life. And so God in the the garden cursed Adam and Eve's ability to accomplish the mission he gave them. He made it futile. And no man in Adam could accomplish the mission given to him until Jesus. Uh, just Just to give you an idea of how important this theme is in the Bible, the first psalm. Probably many of you have uh, it memorized. It has been translated in a lot of different ways now. Uh, but for, for thousands of years, the church has understood that the first psalm, Psalm 1, is a messianic psalm. And so when it says, blessed is the man, in the Hebrew it uses the word Adam. It says, blessed is Adam. But it can't be about Adam. Because it immediately goes on to say, "...who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers." So this is an Adam, a new Adam, that is going to be sinless in a way that the previous Adam couldn't be. But his delight, this new Adam's delight, is going to be in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree. The Bible begins with a tree. It ends with a tree, the tree of life. And Jesus is hung on the cross in the middle. And through the entire scriptures, there's this imagery of the tree, the vine, as the Old Testament often talks about. And it says, he, this Adam, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit. It is fruitful. Can't be about Adam. The old Adam. Its leaf does not wither. It is eternal. It is perfect. It is without blemish. In all that he does, he prospers. This is about Jesus. And that new Adam, Jesus, was victorious over the cross and death. And so when we are rooted in him, grafted in, we get to experience the fruitfulness that we could never experience under the old Adam. And that is incredibly good news. So I went way, you know, 40,000 feet into the air with theology there. But very practically speaking, there's a promise uh, in John 15 Where Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Now fruit, as I said, I had fruit on the brain in grad school. Fruit, the theme of fruitfulness goes all over the place. In Genesis 1, it starts with childbearing. That's the initial idea of fruitfulness in the Bible, and that's actually a common theme. Like, that's one of the main modes of fruitfulness throughout, throughout the entire scriptures. But that fruitfulness theme is connected to the image of God. It's the imagio Dei. It says in Genesis, i read it again just so you get this, so God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So, had Adam and Eve never sinned, their only job or jobs would have been to have children who perfectly reflected the image of God, unmarred by sin. So, and they would have, you know, multiplied very quickly. And to fill the earth with the glory of God, expanding the borders of the temple, the temple garden, filling the earth with God's glory through those image bearers. That was the picture of that. That was the mission of Adam and Eve. That was all they would have had to do to accomplish God's mission given to them was just to have babies and to make the garden bigger and better. Fill the earth with the garden, which was a proto-temple. That's Kind of Greg Beale's thing. He wrote a book called The Temple and Mission. If you ever want to read it, it's really thick, but it's really good. Uh, (laughs) So, but Adam and Eve did sin, and because of sin, they received that curse. But in Jesus, God is doing what Adam and Eve couldn't do. He is filling the world with image bearers, disciples of Jesus Christ who are being remade by the power of the Holy Spirit, sanctified, filled with the Spirit, whose image, who are increasingly bearing the image of God as we are increasingly sanctified. And so the world is being filled up with image bearers through Jesus Everyone who comes to faith in Christ is a new creation who is reflecting the glory of Christ. And so as, any, as we expand the global mission around the world and we go into countries where there have never been any Christians before, we are doing what Adam and Eve couldn't do through Christ. That is an incredible picture. And it's a picture that he wants us to be part of. There's an expectation there that if we are in Christ, we will bear fruit. And of course, part of that is this image of God. God wants to sanctify us. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As we follow Christ in the context of a local community of faith and we're building each other up and we're in God's word and we're practicing spiritual disciplines, God is forming in us the image of Christ so that we are increasingly reflecting God's image into the world. And so personally, at a personal level, part of the mission of God is that we need to become disciples, we need to let God bear fruit in our hearts and our minds so that we are transformed into the image of Christ. That's the first step. But then, God doesn't want that fruitfulness to stop there. Just as he blessed Abram and said, you will be, a, you will be blessed so that you will be a blessing, and that goes actually back to this Genesis 1, and he blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. This blessing isn't meant to be kept to ourselves. We're blessed to be a blessing. And so, one of the main modes of fruitfulness in the Old Testament, of course, is that you have children and you teach them, you bring them up in the knowledge of the Lord. And that is still as valid as it was then, it's as valid as it is today. We need to be people who are making disciples of our families and our children. But even beyond that, God wants us to be disciple makers here and among the nations. And... Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a, a really hard thing out there. Um, how, how do you know if something is mature? How do you know if something's mature? It can, reproduce. it can reproduce. So you get an apple tree in your yard, plant it. First year, nothing happens. Second year, nothing happens. Third year, you go out and there's some flowers, but you know, maybe they don't get pollinated. Fourth year, you go out and you get a few pieces of fruit, and after a while, it gets more and more fruitful, right? You know, you, you buy a little goat or you buy some chickens and the first few months or the first year they, 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 aren't, they aren't able to have kids or goats or little chickens or lay eggs or anything, but after a while they get to maturity and they're able to have children. How do you define spiritual maturity? Well, I'll tell you how most people define it. And I, and I have a problem with this definition. Knowing the right things knowing your Bible, coming to church, being faithful, tithing, all of those really important things. But unfortunately, here in the West, spiritual maturity has become unmoored from the ability to reproduce your faith in someone else. And so true spiritual maturity has to have that component. If you aren't actively trying to reproduce... Or reproducing your faith in other people, whether it's your children, friends, co workers, even people across the street or across the world, then maybe you aren't mature yet. We have a lot of people in our churches who have never become mature disciples of Christ that can reproduce their faith in other people. And that should, I hope that's not condemnatory. I don't want that to be condemnation. I want you to realize that that's not God's heart for you. God wants you to bear much fruit. And if we abide in him and he abides in us, we will bear fruit. That's a promise. And so just like that apple tree in your yard, or if you're trying to breed chickens or, or goats or cows, If they're not having babies, what do you do? And this is true even in the sense of some marriages. You say, well, we tried to have a baby, but we couldn't. No, you go to the doctor. You go to the arborist. You're like, why is my apple tree not bearing fruit? It's been five years. (laughs) You're like, well, is it fertilized? Does it get enough light? Does it get enough water? And you do all the things you can do to make sure that it begins to produce fruit. We need to take a spiritual inventory of our own hearts and our own lives. If we haven't been bearing fruit in that way, or we've never borne fruit in that way, maybe we need to get on our knees with God's word, or we need to get in good godly counsel, or we need to encourage and spur each other on, because God wants us to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth with image bearers. And so when we read this passage, Jesus is saying he's giving this mission to broken, doubting people, and he's saying this mission is going to be accomplished in my power and for my glory, my name. And you will be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, filling the earth with image bearers for me, reflecting the glory of Jesus, accomplishing Adam's mission. We're going to take a little detour really quick. I know we're running, running uh, long right now. So, well, not running long. we still got time, but I don't want to. i still got a long to go. But, uh, you know, who who here has seen the Avengers movie? Okay. We've got a few people. So you can sit through three hours of Marvel. You can sit through three hours of... No. So we're going to go to 2 Corinthians, and this is a beautiful letter from Paul. If you haven't spent a lot of time here, uh, Paul is defending himself against some super apostles, like first century uh, prosperity gospel preachers, and uh, they're saying, you know, Paul, how can you be an apostle of Jesus if you're suffering so much? And he's like, well, actually, this suffering brings glory to Jesus, and... In the context of this, uh, he sets down, he says some amazing things. In fact, this comes right before the passage on jars of clay. Uh, which you're all probably really familiar with. And if you're not, you, it's a beautiful passage. But uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verse 3. And this, to me, is a word of encouragement I received when I was in Japan. Japan is 120 million people. Only about 0.2% of them are evangelical Christians. Less than 1% of them are Christians or have a claim to be, have any relationship with Christ. And it's hard. Uh, It's one of the hardest mission fields in the world. Uh, It's called the graveyard of missionaries because it churns and crushes and destroys missionaries and spits them out. So most missionaries give up before their second term. Um, So when I was in the midst of some doubt and discouragement, God showed me this verse, and it it was really encouraging to me, and I'll share with you why that is. So verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled... And it's hearkening back to Moses, and that was in the last chapter. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So there are people in this world who are blind to the gospel. No matter how clearly you preach it, no matter how well you set it out, no matter how compelling you make the appeal, their hearts and minds are blinded to why the gospel is such good news. So they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul here uses the image of God. Words again, which is hearkening back to Genesis. So he sets up a Genesis kind of connection right there. And then he says, for we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord in ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. This is commenting back to those super apostles again, so that's kind of an aside. So really, verse 4 and verse 6, he has this one thought. For the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And that is the spiritual reality here in Olympia, Washington for the lost. And it's also the spiritual reality for 99% of the people who live in Japan For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness. That's in quotation marks. Where does God say, let the light shine out of darkness? Genesis. Let there be light. So God who said, let there be light, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So every person who's come to faith... It's as if God has said, let there be light. As if a new creation has started in their hearts. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Can you imagine that? Like Everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, it's like an entire universe exploding into existence in their heart. Now guess what? You can't do that. I can't do that. It's impossible for any one of us to turn on the light switch in another person's heart. That is a God-sized job. It is a miracle. And everyone who comes to Christ is a miracle. Now, we may see it more often here in the West. We have churches where people are being baptized. We have a baptism service coming up here in a couple of weeks. And in Japan, we don't see it all that often. And I think in Japan... It's so much more tangible that it is a work of God, that everyone who comes to Christ, it is a miracle. Because in many ways, it is such a a miracle that anyone in Japan would put their faith in Christ with the cultural and spiritual bondage that, that the Japanese people are under. And yet, Japanese people are putting their faith in Christ. And it's a miracle every time that happens. But also the encouragement I receive from this is that it's not my job to do that. My job is to show up and share the gospel and God is going to be the one that brings the new life. Paul talked about it as being one person plants a seed, another person waters, and another person brings forth the harvest. But it's God that does the work. God's the one that brings the growth. And so I want to put this out to you this great commission, this ability to be fruitful and to multiply. This is an opportunity for you to experience God, to grow in your walk with the Lord, to know the Lord better. And I'm going to go into why I think that's the case. And it's not this sword of the law hanging over your neck, this duty that you've got to do because you're a Christian, and if you're a Christian, you got to share your faith with other people. This is actually an opportunity to be part of what God is doing to reconcile the entire universe to himself. You're part of this cosmic this cosmic miracle that's going on whereby Jesus is filling the world with image bearers that perfectly reflect the glory of his son. Now I'll put this out there really quick. Luke 15.10 says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels over one sinner who repents. There are very few things in, in you can do here on earth that have an eternal significance. Store up not your treasures on earth where moth and dust and rust destroy, but store up your treasures in heaven. The, thing, the, the most important thing you can give your life, your energy, your heart to is winning souls. It's winning people for Christ. And you may see that as a, you know, maybe you're thinking about how, how that's going to affect you socially, economically, how much claim that's going to have on your time, how difficult that's going to be, how much social ostracization it's going to have. But I challenge you, that's what God wants to do in you and through you, and it's going to make everything better. It's going to make your life much more joyous. It's going to fill it with new people. It's going to fill it with new life. And as you join with Jesus in his mission, where you go, where his heart is, you get more of him. You know why I know that? Because the next verse is, and lo, I will be with you always until the end of the age. Jesus connects the Great Commission and his presence. There are a lot of books written on spiritual disciplines. And there are a lot of good books written on spiritual disciplines. Prayer, fasting, study, celebration. We've got guys like Richard Foster and Eugene Peterson. And we've got conferences and retreats and all of these kind of things that will, will challenge you to have a more fully formed spiritual disciplines in your life. And, and those are all good but very rarely have I ever heard anybody say, if you want to experience Jesus more, go share your faith with someone. I'll tell you what, if you're a school teacher or anybody like that, you realize like if you want to know something better, teach it to somebody. Teach your kids how to do the math problems in their, in their math problem book. And you're like, man, I forgot how to do this, but now I know how to do it again. That's really good. Or you teach somebody how to change the oil in their, oil in their car or the... the uh, blade on their lawnmower. And suddenly you're a mechanical engineer. And no, I mean, seriously, you know, it, you teach your kids a recipe and you're like, well, how would I explain that to them? And suddenly you're getting out the cookbook or you're doing stuff. Well, the same thing. If you're sharing your faith with someone else, they're going to come back at you with questions. They're going to oppose what you have to say. And you know what the answer, you know, the world is going to beat you up with it. But you know what the answer is, is to get down on your knees and say, Lord, how do I share my faith with this person? What words can I use? You go to your pastor and you say, I had this guy I was sharing my faith with, and this is what he said, and I don't know how to answer him. And I've been giving you more work. Sorry about this. but And, and Jim's going to say, well, let's look at what this says about this, and we'll get this book out, and we'll, we'll look in the Word. And God forbid we actually end up picking up this book and saying, God, how do I answer this person's question from your Word? And in the process of going out and sharing your faith with other people, you're going to end up growing in your faith and in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Evangelism and disciple-making are a spiritual discipline. And like I said, if there is not evidence of that in your life, maybe you haven't matured to the point God wants to mature you to. And if you don't have a hunger or thirst for that maturity, we need to get on our feet, on our knees, and and pray for that. Because just like there's this theme of fruitfulness throughout the entire scripture, there's a theme of barrenness. We'll go all through the Old Testament and find a theme of barrenness. You've got 40 years in the wilderness barrenness. Like, tough barrenness themes all through the Old Testament and into the New. But one of the interesting ones is barren women. How many barren women do you know in, in the Old Testament? There's a few, right? And it's a, it's a touchy subject. I mean, there are women probably in this room who have had trouble, lost pregnancies, had a hard time having children, and it's a, it's a sensitive subject. But isn't it amazing how often God used that in the Old Testament and the New? Hannah, Sarah, Elizabeth, Rebecca. How many times did God bring about new life from barrenness. And did those women just be like, shoot, try to have a baby, can't have a baby, guess it's no good. Or did they get down on their knees? Like you think about Samuel's mom in the temple. They thought she was drunk because she was crying out to the Lord, Lord, make me fruitful. Can we have that heart and desire to be fruitful in our own lives that God would transform us into disciples that make disciples? that make disciples. God wants this for our own good. He doesn't have to use us. He doesn't need us. But just like a mother or a grandmother making cookies with their grandchild or a father going out and teaching their son to mow the lawn. You know what? You can mow the lawn 100 times better than your son. He's going to have no lines, you know, (laughs) You know those cookies—they're going to be weird, uneven shapes. Some of them are going to get burnt. You know, they're, if you just did them yourself, they'd be so much better. But why do you invite your children or your grandchildren into that with you? Well, you want them to know and you want them to learn, but you also want to spend that time with them, and that's what God is inviting us into His great commission with here. He doesn't just want to use us as tools that don't have hearts or souls. To accomplish his mission. We're not just some inanimate object that God uses to accomplish his bigger schemes, but we are his children who he loves and who he delights in, and he wants to use us because he wants us to be with him, where his heart is, where he's working. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much uh, for this great commission that you've given to us, Lord, that we get to accomplish in Christ what Adam couldn't do. Lord, that we are being transformed day by day by the power of your Holy Spirit through the work of sanctification to be uh, your witnesses, to be image bearers for you here, Lord. And Lord, I pray, Father God, that if... Uh, there, there are people here uh, who have never led anyone to Christ or it's been many years since we've led someone to the Lord, Lord, that you would put that burden on our heart, that we would cry out, Lord, give us disciples or we're going to die. Give us new new people to lead to you, Lord. Give us opportunities to share our faith, Lord. Help us to not be afraid of this world or what what people will say about us or maintaining our our, our comfort. But Lord, that you would help us to take risk and help us to step out in faith, trusting that, Lord, as we abide in you, that you are abiding in us and that you are bearing fruit through us, Lord, and that you want us to be fruitful, Lord. We grab onto that promise today. Lord, we want to be fruitful. We pray these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus.